before you grateful for our mutual salvation. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in freedom to study your word. And Lord, this morning, we don't forget the men and women in the armed forces who secure our freedom. Lord, we do pray for them and their protection. Lord, we ask that you would deliver the enemy into their hands. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the saints around the world. We thank you that you've given us the objective word of God and not left us with subjective feelings to know who you are. And so this morning we ask that you would help us understand this word, that we may live lives that are more conformed to the image of your Son. And we ask that you would accomplish that even through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. I'm going to start back in Colossians here. And we are going to be looking at how the Apostle Paul suffered tribulation for the church. And I use that term tribulation intentionally because as you're going to see, there's a connection between his personal suffering and the tribulations that the saints go through throughout the ages. Now again, remember last week when we looked at an outline, I'm going to show you the same outline, we saw this week Paul's going to be talking about his apostolic task. So recall, a few weeks ago we had talked about the hymn in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, where the supremacy of Christ is alluded to. And then we saw last week that in verses 21 through 23, Paul talks about the application of that hymn. He applies it to us in our lives, namely that we will be found blameless in the sight of God on the last day if we persevere. And again, God is the one who gets glory for enabling us to persevere. And this week, what we're going to be looking at is the apostolic task. And again, Paul is going to be talking about himself. He'll sometimes be talking about his fellow co-workers under his authority. And he'll be talking to the Colossians, you plural, and by extension, all of us, all believers for all time. So that's where we pick it up. Now, we're just going to be covering verses 24 through 29. Let me show you how they break down. Verse 24 talks about the suffering of the apostle. And you're going to see a very interesting concept develop regarded, uh, regarding our eschatology and how the understanding of, of a phrase called philipsis, which is tribulation in the Bible, you're going to see a very interesting concept develop as we explore that. Verse 25, we see the apostle's task. And then the focal point, in my opinion, is the mystery, verses 25 through 27. And this is an important concept that we're going to be talking about because the postmodern generation loves to glom on to this term mysterion in the Greek, the mystery, because to them, it gives them ammunition, if you will, to claim that we really can't know what the Bible says. And so they'll say, oh, there's mystery in the Bible. As you're going to see from today's study that that's not true. The mystery revealed in the Bible is about something formerly concealed, now revealed. So it's actually the opposite case from what the postmoderns are claiming. And then in verse 28, we're going to see the apostles' task. And then, we're again, we're going to talk about the labor of the apostle in verse 29. So let's get started in our first verse, verse 24. Paul writes this, Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Notice that term sufferings. It comes from a Greek term pathema. And normally I'm a little leery of linking something that's used in classical Greek to its usage in biblical Greek. Why? Because there's a huge... It'd be like having a phrase from 400 years ago in North America and say it means the same thing today. Okay, 
it's so you don't always want to take just because a, a word is used in classical Greek, it doesn't always retain the same usage. But this one does. Bathema was used by those who wrote the Greek tragedies as referring to someone who suffers and they know that it is their lot in life to suffer. Okay? It's kind of like when I was a young boy, there's always that time in your life when you, when you scratch yourself and you start bleeding and you look at your dad and you want a little sympathy, but he's got to toughen you up. And he says, take it like a man. You know what I mean? You guys know what I'm saying? Take it like a man, you know? And you're like, oh, you know, okay. So that's the idea. Paul's going to take it like a man. Okay, and it's his lot in life, but he knows it's not from blind fate, as the Greeks believed, but rather it's under the providence of God. And so it's his lot in life to suffer. All right. Now, there's an interesting phrase that also appears, or I should say a preposition, that's used twice. And I want to explore, notice where it says, for your sake and on behalf of his body, there's a preposition, huper. You can say it a few times, you own it. Huper, it means on behalf of someone, if you do something and it's accrued to their account. And in this case, it doesn't, it's not as theologically rich as some other passages, but I want to get into the preposition because oftentimes, again, in our day and age, people are saying there's, there's no language in the Bible that talks about substitution. For instance, Brian McLaren is attacking it. This preposition is significant because it talks exactly about that concept of substitution. You doing something on someone else's account. And it becomes extremely significant when we look at some passages in the Bible where Jesus is doing things on our account, namely dying for our sins and giving us righteousness that we didn't have. And so I wanted to look at a few passages. One of them was Galatians 1, 3 through 4. So you guys are, are going to, I'm sorry, my friends here are going to hear. <laughs> I, I got to tell you why this happens. When I talk to teenagers, for some reason I feel the need to say that. And then that's Tuesday night. So then when I come to talk to you, I, anyway, it's, it doesn't sound as pastoral as it should. And I would like to change. So, but realize old habits die hard. But this, you're going to hear in this verse, who pair, and you're going to hear some of the theological significance behind it. Galatians 1, 3 to 4. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So he gave himself for our sins, and there would be the term huper, literally on behalf. So what he did was accrued to our account. That's the idea of huper. Okay? So again, when Brian McLaren says the cross is false advertising, for Jesus, or someone says, you know, this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement is just one doctrine among many. And I happen to believe, no, this isn't me. I'm giving an argument for the sake of argument. They say, well, I believe in the moral um, atonement theory, namely when Jesus dies, I say, boy, look at how good God is and look at how much he loves us. Therefore, I should act like him. No, that's not, I mean, obviously the scriptures teach us that the love of God is demonstrated through the cross, but the primary reason for the cross is Jesus the Messiah taking upon our sins upon himself and him giving us his righteousness. And that's demonstrated by Hooper. There was another verse, First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. Keith, I think you had that one. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Again, same, same phrase, huper, he died on our behalf. So whenever I see, um, when you see a for or behalf of 
oftentimes if you go to a concordance, when it's a theologically, or when it, it's dealing with the atonement, you'll often see who pair. So that's something to look for, okay? So again, it's a very significant theological preposition there. Now the next phrase I want to look at, I want to explore with you, is this idea of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now this has created a lot of heartache among interpreters over the years because the issue is what exactly is lacking regarding Christ's afflictions, okay? So what I'm going to show you is a bunch of interpretations. The last one is the one I think is the proper one. Let me go through some of them. How should we understand this? Number one, this is a, a view that obviously I think is heretical, but it was held to by a few theologians, and they're typically mystics. And what they believed was that Christ's atonement was insufficient. So the idea is you and I had to add to it. This would be, in a sense, kind of almost a Catholic dogma. The idea that we suffer and somehow it's accrued to our account is beneficial but the reason why I have these verses here is right away in Colossians 1, 12 through 14 and 19 through 22, we see that this isn't the case. Paul regards Christ's atonement as fully sufficient. Let me just read 22. This is 122 of Colossians. He says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. Now, what else do we have to add to that? Nothing. How about Hebrews 10.10, the idea of once for all? A passage, Bob, you use a lot in your gospel presentation, uh, 1 Peter 3.18, that he died once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Okay? So the whole point is, is that it's once for all. So therefore, his, his death, Jesus' death, is completely sufficient. So, of course, this is an insufficient view, and we should just disregard that. The second view, this one became popular, by the way, with some of the reformers. And it was a good idea. I just don't think it's true. Um, what they did is they took this phrase uh, as a, what's called a subjective genitive. Okay, now let me explain. Let's talk about an objective genitive and let's talk about a subjective genitive. Uh, let's say I was to give you a phrase, Billy learned the love of God. Is the love of God, God's love, um, does he own it? Or is Billy learning to love God? So if Billy is learning to love God, that would be an objective genitive. If he's learning that God loves him, in other words, it's God owning the love, that's a subjective genitive. Are you with me? Well, here, the reformers, some of them started to take this as an objective genitive, and they believe that we would suffer for the sake of Christ. The problem with that interpretation is it does not answer the question, what is lacking? So what is it that's lacking that you and I are in fact filling up? That doesn't answer the question. So I suffer for Christ for the sake of his name, but how in the world does that make up for what Jesus suffered on the cross? It doesn't seem to answer that question. So it's deficient. So another possible interpretation was to suffer like Christ. And here it's called a genitive of quality. But again, the point with this is if we suffer like Christ... The same issue arises where it does not answer the question, what is lacking? What is it in Christ's afflictions that in, what possibly could be lacking in them? Okay, it doesn't answer that. And then finally, the, the last wrong one that I think that I've seen throughout history is this idea that we suffer in mystical union. So the idea is we are in the, some sort of mystical union with Christ, and when we suffer, he suffers. And when he suffered, we suffer. The problem, in, the problem is... Mystical union is nowhere taught in the scriptures. Okay? They try to claim Galatians 2.20, Philippians 3.10, 1 
it's wrong. We see not a mystical union, but a relational and a positional relationship with Christ. Okay? So that's the distinction. So anyway, the point is this isn't biblical. And again, it doesn't answer the question, what is it that is lacking about Christ's once-for-all suffering on the cross? So let me give you what I think the best answer to this is. And it actually ends up being a technical phrase. Notice it says the afflictions of Christ here on point five. That's actually how it's written in the Greek. It's tone philipson to Christu. So it's the afflictions of Christ. And what I'm going to make the case, and I'm, by the way, I'm indebted to a man named Peter O'Brien for this, is that this is a technical term that refers to the fact that God's people will have to suffer in this age the afflictions allotted to them by Messiah until the time of his coming. Okay, And so they enter in, if you will, to the kingdom through this age of tribulation, which culminates in the great tribulation the last seven years, and then it even gets worse in the last three and a half. And finally, Messiah says, I can stand no more. I'm coming for my people. And that's it. And so it ends up being a technical phrase talking about the messianic birth pangs. And you and I, in a sense, as the saints, are living out this history where we are filling up the full measurement of tribulation that his saints must undergo until he comes. Now, let me give you some evidence of this. and I'll try to make my case here. First of all, I want, to, want you to see the term philipsis, which means tribulation. That term is what's usually, like, for instance, in Matthew 24, it's used to talk about the seven-year period of tribulation. I want you to see how it's used all over the scriptures. So, for instance, we're going to start in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 4 where you're going to see this idea of a coming tribulation even at the end, and you're going to see this term philipsis, which was used, and by the way, that's what was used for Christ's afflictions. The term is philipsis. That's my point. Are you with me? I didn't mention that. So when you see Christ's afflictions, that term affliction is the exact term that's used for tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. Okay? That's why I want to make this point. So when we get to Deuteronomy 4:27 through 30, notice we see, that this idea of a future tribulation that the people of God will go through is even found in the Pentateuch. So let's, let me bring you the context here. Deuteronomy 4 occurs as the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan. It's around the year 1406 B.C. and they're about ready to go into the Promised Land. And Moses is reiterating the terms of the covenant. And he warns the people that, one, they can't hear the things of God, that they're going to end up one day uh, in trouble uh, among the nations because they're not following God's commands. But listen to what he says about the future time of philipsis or tribulation. He says, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few among the nations where the Lord drives you. But from there you will seek the Lord your God when you are in distress. Now that term distress in the Greek Septuagint, is philipsis. It's the same word that's used for Christ's afflictions. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 24 for tribulation. So when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you'll return to Yahweh, your, your God, and listen to his voice. So clearly, Moses has in view here the very last days because we know up until this day, the Jews have not heard the voice of their God. So this idea of philipsis, this idea of a future tribulation, 
is, in fact, present even in the Pentateuch. And to be honest with you, I never knew that it was found all the way as early as Deuteronomy 4. I thought that was very interesting. Okay, so I'm just going to build this case that this ellipsis, this idea of a future tribulation is all over the place and it must reach its appointed limit. So now listen to Isaiah 65, 16 through 17. And listen to the language here that the Lord is speaking through the prophet. He says, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Now, let me stop there. The context there is the Lord is speaking about a future time when men and women will swear an oath, not by idols, because that will be banished. That was the, the previous age that they underwent during Philipsis. It was the tribulation. But now they're going to be entering an age where every man and woman will swear an oath by Yahweh's name. In other words, they will not be engaged in idolatry. Are you with me? Okay. So that's what he's going to say. He says, because the former troubles, and there's our term Philipsis again, are forgotten. Okay, so that age is gone. The age of affliction, the age of tribulation is behind us. That's what he's saying. And then he says, that is forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. So let me point something out. We have synonymous parallelism here where it's reiterated. See, the former troubles are forgotten, and then they are hidden from his sight. So it's really saying the same thing. Okay, now listen to this. When we get into verse 17, he says, For behold... I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That is a discussion about the eternal states, the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so immediately following the age of tribulation, we're going to enter into this messianic period. Now, you're probably thinking, what about the, the millennial kingdom? Okay, millennial kingdom is fit in there. Let me um, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 65. I should have put this on there, but I, I couldn't fit everything on my slide. Let me just show you how the discussion about the eternal state, in other words, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the millennial kingdom are often intermingled. Okay, and so the idea is, think about this. If you're driving out to the Rockies and you see a mountain range in front of you, they look, the mountains, like they'll be one in back of the other, and they look like they're right next to each other. But when you get up close to them, they're separated by miles. Okay? Sometimes that's the way it is in biblical prophecy. They're the same. For instance, we see it in Isaiah 61, where the Lord, uh, Jesus, remember, he's uh, declaring the fact that he is the long awaited Messiah in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he cites from Isaiah 61, and he stops it right in the middle of a, really, a, a, a phrase, because the next portion of it talks about his second coming. Okay? So you'll see these passages often. So here's what I want you to see. Isaiah 65, and let's start in verse, let's just start at 17, and we'll read on down. Okay, so it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to, to mind. Now, I think that's a discussion about the eternal state, the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21 through 22. Then in verse 18, he says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will, there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So right there we see this idea that there's still death, and certainly there's no death in the eternal state. 
Okay, so I take that as a reference to millennial kingdom. So I just want you to realize that just because I'm reading here in verse 17 and it goes right on to the eternal state, realize the eternal state and the millennial kingdom are intermixed in this passage. Are you with me? The big picture is the philipsis comes, the times of affliction, that's the, the age, the, this age that we're living in, but the next age that's coming will be free of that. Okay, and so this age has to be filled up to its appointed limit and then one day the Messiah comes. That's the idea. And by the way, we see this in apocryphal uh, writings of the Jews, in apocalyptic writings. We see it in First Enoch. We see it in uh, the writings of Baruch. It's the same idea. Now, again, that's not canonical, but we see the same thought process in a sense that there's going to be two ages, one of affliction and one of the Messianic age here in our Bible. Now, let me give you another passage out of Daniel chapter 12. And if you recall, Daniel 12, it follows um, the section in Daniel 11.36 to the end of the chapter 11 where the discussion is about the Antichrist's conquest. But we get to Daniel 12.1. It says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress. And again, there's the time of philipsis. Sometimes chimera is used. It's the day of distress. Some versions have... Uh, the time or the kairos, and that's how it's translated here. The kairos would be the epoch, the, the season of philipsis, the, the season of tribulation. Notice what Daniel goes on to say. Such has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So think, think about it this way. In this age that we're living in, there's going to be this affliction and tribulation that the saints are going to experience. But when we come to the tribulation, it's going to explode exponentially. And at the end, it's going to be culminated by the Messiah's coming. He puts an end to that age. Okay, That's, I think, what's going on here. So what we see then, for instance, in Matthew, he's really talking about the same thing. Um, in fact, well, you know, who is the Matthew 24, 21 through 22? Okay, hold on to that one. I'll, I'll read this, I guess, first, and then I'll have you read that. I should have had that one in here. Um, but anyway, let me read this. Matthew 24, 8 through 9. Jesus is talking about the same time now that we've just been reading about. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to, again, philipsis, to tribulation. Again, the same word that's used of Christ's afflictions here in uh, Colossians 1, 24. And will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. So Jesus is talking about the very same thing. And then, Robert, you have the passage, Matthew 24, 21 through 22, And listen to what he says about this great time, the time of great distress. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Yeah. And so the idea, again, is it's going to, this tribulation period will reach an exponential stage in the tribulation. And at the end of it, the Messiah, it will be filled. Think about it as a cup, and it will be filled, this age of tribulation, and he won't stand it anymore, and he's coming for his people, and there's going to be a role reversal. Um, we see in Revelation chapter 6, the saints are under the altar, and they cry out day and night, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That answer is given finally in Revelation 19.11, when who comes? Messiah does, and he puts an end to it. Okay, And so we see this very thought, that this age of Philipsis is done away with. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-7, Paul writes, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, again, tribulation, those who afflict you. Okay, now here we have this reversal, and to give relief to you who are afflicted 
and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. That's the idea of parousia from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So, friends, the idea is we must go through this age and fill up the allotted amount of philipsis, the allotted amount of affliction, and at the very end of it, the Messiah, he won't take it anymore, and he's going to avenge us. He's going to stand for us, and there's going to be, as Bob points out, a lot of times the talk about Mishta, there's going to be this reversal. Those who were afflicted will be blessed, and those who were seemingly blessed in this life will be afflicted. That's the idea. We have the same idea in Acts 14.22 where Paul was beaten and the apostles come down to teach. They're in Lystra. And you can, uh, who has the Acts 14.22? I hope I gave that to somebody. Did I give that to anybody? 14.22? Yeah. Okay. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. And so that's the idea. I think that's in. So here, here's what I'm contending is that phrase, the making up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I think that that afflictions of Christ is a technical term in a sense in the mind of Paul and those who are around him in that day. And they believe that this age will be filled up and you and I will go through this age of affliction, of tribulation. But when it's done, Messiah is coming back, and you and I are going to be blessed, and our enemies will be afflicted. So again, that would seem to give more credence to that view. So that's my view. So in other words, here's the beauty of that view. We can hold to the fact that you and I are suffering, but in no way are we adding any credit to what Christ did on the cross for us. Does that, does that make sense? And so this view then would seem to make sense in light of the context. Plus, he ends up talking about the mystery later on. And the mystery is an eschatologically loaded term because the mystery that was once concealed and now revealed is talking about the messianic age. Now the gospel which has been concealed in the past is fully revealed. And we're going to talk about the extent, how much was known in the Old Testament and how much is revealed now. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But now let's move on. And we're going to look into verse 25 and 26 where we see that Paul is a minister of the gospel. And he goes on to say, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. So that now here he's using what's called an infinitive verb, but it's a purpose statement. Here's the purpose of why he he came so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his, state, his saints. Now notice, I love that but now, because remember we talked about that? It's the divine but. We have that right here. So the old age, it was concealed, but now God acted, and it's revealed. It's, it's that idea. It's the divine but. God acted on our behalf. Now, I want to talk about this term. You see where I have it highlighted from? I want to just help you reword this a little bit. It would be better understood as, um, oh, I'm thinking, I think I have part of a slide for this. Yeah, yeah. it's a subjective genitive. So in other words, it's not the stewardship from God. It, it is. It comes from him. But it's God's management. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out is that it helps me at least think that Paul is partaking in God's management. Okay? It's the management of God. And Paul has been made a partaker so that when you see the part that I have um, highlighted bold that I might fully carry out, the preaching, That is a term that has to do with filling the word of God. So the point is, God has had it ordained that there's going to be this much of the word. And so it's already done. So what Paul is doing is he's just filling it up. 
That's the idea. He's filling it to its full. So God is responsible. God is the one who's doing it. But Paul, he's using the means of Paul to fill it up. That's kind of the sense that you get from this passage. Okay. Now, the final thing, and this is the most important part of this passage, is the idea of mystery. Again, the mystery has to do with what was once concealed and is now revealed. And this is a huge issue today. In fact, I talked to my brother-in-law, um, it was probably a year ago, and I love him dearly. And if he's listening, I'm, I hope he is listening, okay? Because I want him to hear this again. He asked me, because he's leaning towards the emergent side of things, and he said to me, Eric, he says, we see language all the time. How can you be so dogmatic, Eric? We see language time and time again about the mystery. We see the mystery all over. And I said, yes, Eric. And his name is Eric, too, so this might get confusing because I'm Eric and he's Eric, so <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> okay, but I said, Eric, realize that every time the mystery is used in the New Testament, it's always used for what was formerly concealed and is now revealed. That's how it's used. So it actually makes the opposite point that the postmoderns are contending that it makes. Rather than saying something is hidden, it's actually stating that it's now revealed. Okay? So that's what's so beautiful. So let's look at some passages that talk about that very idea. The mystery once concealed, now revealed. And by the way, in your notes, I was on the phone, I think, when I did this slide. And I, you, in your notes, have Revelation. I just caught it last night. It's Romans 16, 25 through 26, obviously. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So here's what Paul writes about this very concept. He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now, and again, we see this divine but, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations. So if it has been made known, how is it that the postmoderns are saying we can't know the Bible? The scriptures are declaring to us that we can know. Luke writes in Luke chapter 1, I write to you these things, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay? So, um, you know, you got a question? Oh, yeah. What I'm hearing you say, yeah. I hope it's not what, you're, what I'm hearing you say, that there is no mystery at all. You're saying, um, no, wait, before you comment, sure. please. Granted, the mystery concerning the gospel, the incarnate Christ would come and redeem mankind, yeah. has been revealed, and we know that. It's no longer a mystery, sure. according to Scripture and according to my understanding alongside yours. However, mm-hmm. there, is, there are multiple places in Scriptures that declare there is mystery in God. He's unscrutable. I looked up in the concordance just now. Um, To deny that there's a lot, I mean much, most of God we cannot comprehend or understand. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. The inscrutable ways of God. Um, His ways are higher than our ways. Um, To say that we can by our human intellect and logic understand all the mysteries of God, the living word. We can understand to some extent yeah, the, just, the written word, yeah. but not the living word. He's exactly. Christ. Let me just stop you right there because you're making a, I think you're making a good point. What I'm making the claim is, is that what God has revealed to us, we can know. Okay? And so what God has revealed, I am not only, not only can we know it, but we're duty-bound to know it. We're commanded to know it. But there are certain things that God has not revealed, and I would agree that that remains a mystery. So, for instance, if somebody were to ask me, well, Eric, how many angels are there in heaven? I would say, don't know, mystery. So there are, there's a place for mystery in the sense of what's not been revealed, but what has been revealed isn't a mystery. In fact, we do, in fact, know those things. And we're expecting, in fact, um, Jesus says in John 12:48, 48, 
This is that which will judge you on the very last day. The very words that I have spoken will judge you. So, in fact, if we can't know them, then we're going to actually fall into judgment. And so this idea of knowing unto a salvation is extremely important. Again, but it's always related to what God has revealed, never to what he has not revealed. Yeah. You know what? Say, I'm going to just... What, you know, I, you probably weren't here. You know, I made an announcement. What we're going to start doing is I'm going to lecture for 50 minutes. The last 10, we're going to start taking questions because it's not because of you. You guys are fine. It's me. I'm sorry, my friends. It's not you. <laughs> it's me. I just, I get off track and then all of a sudden a whole hour goes by and I'm still on only one verse. So hold that until the very end and I'll hopefully, how much time? Okay, yeah, we should be able to get through this. Okay, so now we are in... We're talking about the mystery. Now, what I want to show you another passage that talks about this idea in Matthew 13, 10 through 11. Now, this passage, I'm using this for a little different reason. I want you to think about the mystery that was once concealed is now revealed. But as there's this progressive revelation, you and I as evangelicals believe in a progressive revelation. Now, remember, the gospel was preached in Genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman would one day crush the serpent's head. That's not a lot to go on, but it is the gospel. Okay. So what we believe is in a progressive revelation, but as this revelation is progressing and being revealed, it is concealed to some and revealed to others. It is revealed to God's elect, and it is concealed to the reprobate. But it is concealed by allowing the reprobate to be the reprobate. God does not enter in on their behalf. Again, the idea of who pair. <laughs> anyway, you, you see what I'm saying? He doesn't enter in on their behalf, and so they do not, in fact, understand the things of God. So let's just read this passage. Matthew 13, 10 through 11. The disciples, they say to uh, Jesus, they say, why are you speaking in parables? Oh, I'm sorry, it's actually there. I don't have to give you the context. Why do you speak in them, to them in parables? Then Jesus responds. He says, to you, it has been granted to know, and again, there's, I think that's Gnosko there, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So not only do we have this mystery that was once concealed, now revealed, but as it's being revealed, it's only being allowed to be seen by God's elect. And the rest, they're blinded to it. Okay? So that's why in this passage, if you recall, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he actually explains the meaning of the parable in very plain language. Um, and sometimes, I'm not sure on this, don't go to the bank on this, but I, sometimes I wonder if that isn't why Christ says uh, he'll do something miraculous and he'll say, tell no one. I wonder if that isn't an act of concealment. Um, part of it has to do with the fact that he has to go to Jerusalem at the appointed time. But some of it, I wonder, it isn't an act of concealment. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if anybody has any thoughts later on that, we can talk about it. But so anyway, so the point is we have a mystery once concealed, now revealed. But let's ask the question, how much was known? If, in fact, the gospel was a mystery in the ages past, well, what was known? In other words, was it the fact that the gospel was completely unknown in the Old Testament? And now we have the gospel today, and those poor people in the Old Testament, they just didn't know any better, they didn't know anything. No, I don't think that that's what's being stated. So let me lay out the case that, in fact, we had the gospel, but through progressive revelation... We know far more today. In fact, we know that the person and the work of Messiah most fully because of the, the word of God in our new covenant. So let's look at what was known. Look at Acts 2.30. This is the sermon at Pentecost that Peter is giving. And I want you to notice closely what his contention is. He says, and so, talking about David. So this is Peter preaching and he's talking about David. And so because he was a prophet and knew that, now here comes Psalm 132.11. God had sworn to him with an oath 
to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And I, the descendants is karpos. It's actually fruit. But it's the same phrase or idea of seed. It gets back to the seed promise in Genesis 3.15. So to seat one of his descendants, or, or seed, if you will, on his throne. Now here comes Peter again. He says, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Notice the contention that Peter is making is that David looked ahead. And he wasn't just speaking better than he knew. He was teaching messianic doctrine. There was a book called The Prophets and the Promise, written by a man named Willis Beecher, who gave a lecture series in 1902 to Princeton um, Theological Seminary. And that book revolutionized my understanding of messianic prophecy. I often thought, now I'm not saying there isn't part of this, I often thought, though, the totality of what the prophets were saying, it was the fact that they were writing better than they knew. They were writing and they had really no idea. They were writing away and God happened to have it come true in the last days. Okay? My understanding of what the prophets did was that they were teaching not just haphazard predictive prophecies, but messianic doctrine. These prophets of old were wrestling with who the Messiah was and what he would do. They were teaching the people of God messianic doctrine. Now, was it predictive? Yes. But it was more than just haphazardly writing better than they knew. They were teaching messianic doctrine. And I think we see that claim here, that David wasn't writing better than he knew, but rather he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And we see the same thing when we look at 1 Peter 1.10, where Peter writes this. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That is extremely important to Peter because Peter gaffed it early on in his life. He had the the whole thing reversed. He had it all glories. Well, now he has learned that, no, there was the suffering to come and the glories to follow. But his contention is that's exactly what the prophets were trying to teach. It was just that he was blinded to see that truth. Okay, but once it was revealed to him, he gladly taught it. So it wasn't that the prophets were just writing better than they knew. Now, sometimes they did, but there's an element where they're teaching messianic doctrine. We see that, for instance, um, in Second uh, Timothy 3. You remember 3.15, yes. where Paul talks about that Timothy knew the word of God and it made him wise unto salvation? Well, that phrase there, what word of God did Timothy have? He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have his John MacArthur study Bible, did he? He had, <laughs> poor fellow, they would have held. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He had the Old Testament. And so Paul's contention was the Old Testament was able to make Timothy wise unto salvation. So don't think, see, see what I'm trying to do is add some balance here. Don't think that because we had a mystery that was once concealed now revealed, that they had no idea about the gospel. No, they had the gospel, and the Old Testament clearly taught the scriptures. I didn't give this passage out, I don't think. I think it was delinquent. Turn with me to um, Luke. Um, I just want to show you one. I didn't plan on this, but let me just show you one more passage. Luke 20, 24. Let's see, I, I'm just trying to figure out where to start. Well, let's just start in verse 24. So 24, 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but, but, uh, but him they did not see. 
Now, here, now remember, this is the idea here is Jesus is talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And the disciples are saying, you know, you just can't, they can't believe that Jesus was so dense that he didn't understand what was going on. Remember, and so the irony is, of course, he knows what's going on. They don't, right? <laughs> That's the irony. But they're saying, well, I can't understand. So they're recounting what happened a resurrection morning, okay, and, and the whole events of the, the crucifixion and the passion of Christ. So now, in verse 25, Jesus ends up explaining to them the truths of the Scriptures. Listen to what he says. And he says, and he said to them, as Jesus, to the disciples, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, I, that's probably day in there, the divine necessity, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, that's the law, and with all the prophets, that's the rest of the scriptures, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the contention there is the gospel, sure enough, was present. Okay. So in what sense was the mystery concealed and now revealed well it's more fully explained we now know who the messiah was we know where he came from we know far more remember genesis 3:15. if that's all you knew you knew that the messiah was coming but you didn't know where he came from and there's a lot of things that you didn't know but now it's fully revealed okay that's the idea but that doesn't mean that the gospel wasn't present in the old testament so we just have to have that balance there all right now let me keep rolling here what time are we all right, now we see this idea of the hope of glory. Now remember the preceding passage, but, but has now, again, the, the divine but, but has now been manifested to his saints. We come to verse 27. Colossians 1.27, Paul continues, he says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, now, we're going to talk a little bit further about this mystery, but let's look at that phrase, which is Christ in you, because that has also been a debate over the years. The debate is this. Is Christ dwelling in Gentile Christians? So I'm focused. Oh, here, let me just put the next one up. Or is Christ dwelling among Gentile Christians? So the difference is, is it's the focus. Is this passage focusing in on the fact that Christ is now dwelling on the individual Christian? Or is what's significant to Paul... The fact that he's in the Gentiles. You see what I'm saying? So what's the focus? Is it the fact that Christ is living in you and me uh, individually? Or is it the fact that you and I as Gentiles have been brought to the promises of God? Now we've been brought near, you and I who are far off. And so I think it's both. (laughs) When you don't know, you punt and you say it's both. A double entendre. That's the term I use for it. Christ dwelling in and among the Gentile Christians. I think it's both. And I think we can uh, make a case that it is in fact both, okay? Let me, somebody want to read Isaiah 56, 1 through 5? I shouldn't say somebody, Patrick, thank you. And now let me bring you back, everyone, to Genesis 12. So while you're looking that up, I'll read Genesis 12, 3. And what I want you to see is that the plan of God from the beginning, the gospel, the Evangelion, actually incorporated the Gentiles all along. Are you with me? So it wasn't that God had plan A and then... Israel messed it up and he went to plan B. No, plan A was always for both Jew and Gentile. And I want to make that case right away from X, or, uh, Genesis 12, verse, well, I'll just start in verse 1. We'll go to verse 3. Here's what's stated to Abram. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see this idea that messianic salvation isn't just for the Jews. It's for all the families of the earth. So I want you to see that this is part of the seed promise. This is part of the gospel. So this isn't something new that God did. It was the plan all along. Okay. So Patrick, you have Isaiah 56, 1 through 5. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Great. Thanks, Patrick. Let me point out a few things in this passage. First of all, in verse 3, notice the foreigner. Those who were far off from the covenants are now brought near, and they cannot say, that, they, that God will separate them from him. Notice all the language in here about the obedience to the law. Realize anytime you see obedience in the Old Testament, that is synonymous with saving faith. Okay? And the reason why I mention that is time and time again, the problem with the Israelites was, the problem was that they did not have the Spirit of God within them. So here's my point. One of the promises was under the new covenant uh, we see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, was that God would end up writing the law upon their hearts. So the idea is when they trusted in Messiah, the Holy Spirit would come and enable them to believe. Okay? And what he's saying here is that that promise extends even to the foreigner. In fact, he uses the term eunuch in verse 3. Now, a eunuch is a, a man who's been uh, castrated. Okay? I don't know how else to say it. That's the, the, and here's why. Okay, here's, we have to understand why. He was a foreigner to the covenants, and normally they were brought in to, like, the king, to work for the king. And when you work for the king, it was beneficial if you're a eunuch because you couldn't, you couldn't mess with the harem, if you, if you know what I'm saying. And you couldn't give children that would end up taking away, you know, the throne from the king. So the point is, is these eunuchs considered them especially accursed. And if you were, in fact, a Jewish man, you would never want to be really a eunuch, Okay. So the idea is, is that this is a, a foreigner, and not only a foreigner, but the foreigner that has the least going for him. He has cut off from everything that's important to the Jewish mind. But yet even he, under the new covenant, through faith in Messiah, will one day brought, be brought near. And so his loss, if, if he is with Messiah, if he is worshiping the Lord in truth, he's got the world by the tail. That's the idea. Even though he's suffered in this life great physical loss and never have, be able to have children. So the, the beauty in this passage is really neat that, again, there's no division over race, class, or gender. Okay? All those who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that type of idea. And so it's a beautiful one. Now, so my point is, is this promise that we get back in Colossians 1.27, it's the idea... What's so beautiful about this mystery is that now Christ, the promise of Messiah, has gone not to this to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. But it's also a great promise that the, the living Christ now tabernacles or dwells within us. Okay, And that's the other promise. And that is actually alluded to, for instance, 
um, again, about regeneration. Okay, we talked about Ezekiel 36. Let's turn to Ezekiel 36 again real quick. Ezekiel 36, 25, the Lord says this. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, remember, the heart of flesh doesn't mean a sinful heart, but rather a heart that can respond to the things of God. A stony heart is a heart that's unresponsive to God. Okay, so that's so a lot of times in New Testament language we see flesh refers to sinfulness and then the spirit is godliness, but that's not how flesh is being used here. And so in verse 27 he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you, notice, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And there you see the link between faith and obedience. So his spirit comes to us how? By faith by faith in the Messiah, then the Holy Spirit indwells us according to Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In fact, Ephesians 4:30 says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And so that is a great mystery. The idea that the, under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit would be poured out in a greater way than they'd ever seen, enabling finally the people of God to be pleasing in his sight. And so this is this great mystery, and it extends not just to those who are genetically linked to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to even Eric Dalma in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and to Larry, and I don't know where you live, Larry, but to you too, and to to Bob, and to all of us. It's a beautiful thing. You and I, who were once estranged and far off from the covenants of God, have now been brought near. This is a great mystery. This is beautiful. In fact, I think, for instance, when we see like um, 1 John 2, 2, he died not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. What is amazing to John is that the whole world incorporates both Jew and Gentile. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, I think that that's an amazing thing to a Jewish, uh, a Jewish rabbi or Jewish disciple. Okay, uh, one more verse, I th- or two more, I guess. I'll, I'll hurry here. Um, here we have Romans 5, 15, 9 through 12. Listen to what Paul says. And he says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written... Now we come to... I wrote these down. This is first a, a quote from Second Samuel... 2250. He says, As it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let him, and let all the peoples praise him. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 3243. And, oops, I missed one. Oh, the, the one up above was Deuteronomy 3243. That was Psalm 117 1. And then, He goes on, as Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. I wanted you to see this passage because notice the promise to the Gentiles, but it also comes from the Psalms, it comes from Torah, it was from Deuteronomy, and it comes from the prophets. Paul, I think, is deliberately doing that to show you that through the law, the prophets, and the writings, the promise was that the Gentiles would be part of the plan of God. So it was always the plan. This isn't plan B. This is plan A all along. And that is the mystery. But, but it's finally unfolded. We finally see it. And therefore, what was in the Old Testament is now fully revealed. We actually see it. So that's the idea there. Okay. 
And I'll hurry through here. Okay, now this is just real straightforward. The apostolic task. Listen to what Paul says. He says, we proclaim him. Those are those who are under his authority, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the goal. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. So Paul is, in fact, the apostle whose goal is to make us complete in Christ. Let me just give you the application point. I'll take some questions. The application is this. I want to just summarize. We have been grafted into the promise, not promises, but I'm talking about the promise, the messianic promise, the promise of Messiah. We've been grafted into that promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul labored on our behalf and undertook the portion of the afflictions of Christ, just like we must. So must we. And again, remember this passage. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. My friends, you and I are living between the age, we're still in the age of tribulation. It's being filled up and one day it's going to exponentially increase under the reign of the Antichrist. But Christ, our Lord, is coming back for us and he will stand up on the last day. Just as he did for Stephen in Acts 7.59, he will stand for us. And he will afflict those who afflicted us, and you and I will rest assuredly in his presence at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that is our great hope and promise. So, friends, my point to you today, if you're undergoing affliction and tribulation because of your witness to Christ, keep doing it. Because this age is passing away. Okay? All right. Now, let me take, um, Coralie, did you still have some more thoughts? Part of your teaching, um, the phrase... uh, and you were denying that it, that it is true that there is a mystic, sweet communion. I thought of that hymn, and I couldn't remember the name of it, but it, the quote is, In mystic, sweet communion with God, the three in one. You know, that's just one thought. And then um, the verse, in, I looked it up, Philippians 129, that talks about suffering. Mm-hmm. For Christ, we are called not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer sure. for, for his name. So I just thought of that when you were talking. And then the yeah. one that I was thinking of when you went on to uh, speak on um, oh you were saying that there as if you were pointing to a trivial mystery of angels how many angels dance on a pin the thought came to me that uh, about the mystery of God that he's far more mysterious than the things that are essential like the mystery of his will and um, I mean yes true he has made uh, known to us the mystery of his will regarding the Redeemer and the plan of redemption in Christ. Uh, But uh, not only his will, but how he does things and why. Those are great mysteries, not not trivial mysteries like how many angels stand on a piano. No, I'm not trying to trivialize it. All I'm saying is let's make the category distinction to say what God has clearly revealed we're bound to and we can know, but what he has not revealed that we can say truly is a mystery. So it's not the idea that God isn't mysterious to me. There are some things that are a mystery, but what I'm claiming is that what God has revealed, I cannot allow a postmodern, I have to refute them when they say, well, we can't know what the Bible says. No, my claim is no, what God has revealed, we clearly can know. And in fact, we're commanded to know it. So let's make that distinction. What God has not revealed, yes, there is an element of mystery to that. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the clarification. I, yeah. I would say that when we look at life and I look at the choices and the decisions that I have to make as a human as I navigate life. Yeah. Who do I marry? What job do I take? Do I want to go to this store or that store? Where do I spend my money? Yeah. Everything that I need to know about God's will is revealed in the commandments that he's given to me. And 
if I follow his revealed will, even though there's things I don't know, yeah. is, you know, do I take this job or that job? Do I buy this pork chop or that roast? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's right. It's not a sin for me to have a, a choice there. And after I've purchased whatever meat I'm going to have and I eat it, That's right. that was God's will and his purposes are unfolding in history as I walk through life. I don't need to know anymore. That's right. Amen. In fact, the, the problem I have is that I don't obey the, the revealed will of God. Yes. Uh, and right. I'm much more interested in the unrevealed because uh, that, that's, there's a lust there to know what he hasn't revealed, that's and right. I'm not willing to re, you know, obey what he has. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 is the passage that comes to my mind. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Could yeah. you flip back a couple slides yeah. to that, uh, verses 28 and 29? I just saw something in there yeah. that really struck me. We really mm. here have a clear teaching about the means of grace. Mm. Okay. Because notice it says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. So what's the result of being under the teaching of the word of God? Complete. That we might present every man complete in Christ. So the the means God uses to complete us and mature us and sanctify us is the teaching of Christ and his will. Amen. And so here's a verse that's teaching the means of grace. I never saw that until today. And... uh, that concept is just blows me away. I, I don't know how I spent 20 years of my Christian life not knowing that. <laughs> I know. All right? I mean, I was just going around looking for every kind of deeper life or better process or newer <laughs> thing. And then finally, the lights went on and the blinders came off. And I realized that by teaching people the Word of God in clarity and preaching Christ to them, will actually be the means God uses to complete them in Amen. Christ. Amen. And that's, exa- Bob, you're exactly And that's what Second Timothy 3.17, the word of God equips us for every good work. Yeah, and, Apos- yeah. in, in, in Greek, how many works are we equipped for by the word of God? Every good work. And so it's completely sufficient. So why in the world are they engaging in meditation at Bethel yeah, I know. University? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just tragic yeah. uh, to see what's happening across Christendom as what God does use and will use and promises to use is being laid aside. Just this week, I got a call from an elderly gentleman from western Minnesota who was just heartbroken because the church he'd been in for years and years and years and raised his uh, kids in came we got a new pastor who no longer wanted to teach the Word of God. Absolutely refused to do so. And when this man's son wrote up a document handed out to the congregation asking that the pastor would teach the Word of God, who had actually been reading from some books and stuff rather than even writing a sermon, the next week the sermon was on murmuring and rebellion. Okay. If you if you want me to preach the word of God as a pastor, then you're a rebel, and God's going to judge you. Unbelievable. Wait, I mean, abuse. this just and this this man was just heartbroken. He doesn't yeah. know what to do. That's just abuse. Isn't yeah, it? his 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 church has ripped away from him. Yeah. And then he's considered the evildoer for simply wanting the pastor to teach the word of God to the hungry oh. sheep that need it. It's heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. I've heard this story so many times it breaks my heart. And I don't know. It, all I can say is we must be in the last days. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Bob. Well, have a great Sunday, you guys, or my friends. <laughs>